I'm Heather, a chaos coordinator and mom of three young kids. Chaos and cookies is literally my life, with never-ending dishes, laundry, you name it. Being a mom is a blessing, but it also comes with hard days too. Together, we can find the humor and real solutions to lighten your load and clean up the crumbs. You're listening to the Chaos and Cookies Podcast. Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Chaos and Cookies podcast. We are talking testing uh, with kids in school, SATs, ACTs, the dreaded uh, acronyms that I never liked as a child. Um, I was never a good tester. I think I took the SAT three times and never broke a thousand. When the score was a thousand, I'm dating myself. But I have Dr. Kelly Frindell here uh, to talk more about testing and test anxiety. And I'm um, gonna ask her a little bit more about that. And uh, to give you a little bit more of a background on Dr. Kelly, uh, she's an in-house test prep. In, uh, in-house test prep is the brainchild of Dr. Kelly Frindell, PhD. She, uh, she started in 2007. And she began her career helping students prepare for tests back in 2001. For over 20 years, she has assisted students in achieving testing success and providing students with the tools to get into the school of their dreams. Dr. Kelly graduated with honors from Trinity University with a BA in psychology. Uh, She then obtained her PhD in public health from the University of Texas. Go Longhorns, hook them. After gaining invaluable experience at various institutions, she started in-house test prep in 2007. Dr. Kelly is an expert in test preparation styles, techniques, and study material. And she, her specialties are the SAT, ACT, SSAT, PSAT, GRE, TAXS, or tax test, and ISEE. Dr. Kelly's love and passion for helping students exceeds their expectation. Uh, that's the driving force behind her company and her success. Welcome, Dr. Kelly S. Frindell to the podcast. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have this conversation. Um, before we do, um, let's, before we jump in, I have an icebreaker question, which is, uh, what is your favorite cookie and or cookie memory? My favorite cookie is probably chocolate chip because they're delicious and who doesn't love chocolate chip cookies. And let's see, my favorite cookie memory probably is making cookies with my mom when I was a little kid. Oh yeah. Did she make chocolate chip cookies or anything special? We, we made chocolate chip cookies a lot at Christmas. We made the, the butter cookies that you put the icing on and then decorate. And we still do a fair amount of those. And in the last few years, we've actually started having cookie day, which is usually in the middle of December. And we, my sisters and I all come over and we make cookies that we can send out to people. That was so fun. It's coming up soon. That'll be fun. So, um, are you a big baker? Are you a big cooker? I am not. I can make brownies and I'm very good at brownies. (laughs) from a mix and that's about it yeah, other than amazing. that I, I don't do a lot of baking hey hey that's all it's, hey, not everyone likes to cook I, I hate laundry I'm not really a big cook but I'm happy to eat cookies I love cookies <laughs> you'll, you'll eat them I don't know if I want to make them all the time that's why there's just a day in the year mm-hmm, correct. <laughs> well let's um jump in a little bit so what is your fascination with like these standardized tests like why why um I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I, I didn't test well. I was a good student, a student, um, did all of my homework, but I was never a good standardized tester. 
Why is that? Why, why, how do you find that? So I, I got into test prep by accident, pretty much. I, I was planning to go be a psychology professor. I decided that when I was in ninth grade and I worked for eight years through high school and through college to get myself into grad school to go be a clinical psychology professor. And when I was a senior in college, I had to take the GRE, which is a standardized test for graduate school. It's like the SAT, but for grad school. And at the time, and still there's a lot of vocabulary on it. And I learned 1,040 vocabulary words for that test. I spent months memorizing them. And when I was done, I thought, oh, I should do something useful with these 1,040 words that I just learned. And when I was a senior, which is when I was applying, I got hired by Princeton Review, which is one of the big test prep companies and learned their methods from them. When I went to grad school, I kept teaching test prep on the side, quickly discovered the program I was in was not the right match for me, wrong time, wrong place, wrong program. And, but I had worked so hard to get into that program that I stayed for a long time and then eventually ended up switching to public health. And when I finished my public health degree, I moved back to Texas and I'm still teaching test prep and I really liked it. And I ended up starting my business in 2007. And that was not what I intended to do full time, but it's evolved that way where it is. And I really like it and I really enjoy it. And I know that a lot of people do say, oh, I hate tests or I'm not good at tests or I can't do them or they're afraid of them. And one of the things I really like doing is working with people to help them overcome those fears and those limitations. And for some people, legitimately, they will never be good at tests. That's true. We all have different strengths. We all have different things we're good at and that we're weak at. But for most people, the idea that they're bad at test isn't really true. Some of it is mindset. Some of it's that they're lacking some skills or they just haven't learned what they need to, to learn. And so I really like helping people realize, oh, I'm probably not actually bad at tests. I just didn't have the skills I needed or the confidence I needed. Yeah, for me, I was like, I always ace like my tests in school and my, in my subjects, but I, I don't know if it was just the, um, maybe the pressure or the time. Mm-hmm. I, I always felt confident going in there. I came from a house of educators, like my mom was that reading specialist. My sister is a principal, like school was a very, it was priority. And so I never felt unprepared, but for some reason I would always get, always get my test scores back. And I'm like, Oh God. And my sister too, the same thing. She did not test well when it comes, but she was like hardcore into like being a really great student. So Mm -hmm. I think it also is a really big, um, confidence blow when you are such a great student and then you get these standardized tests back and you're like, oh, right. Wow. And, and I have a lot of students in that situation. I have a lot of kids who come to me and they come from very high powered families. Parents are doctors, lawyers, bankers, and they have siblings who walked in and sat down and got close to a perfect score on a test without studying. And then they come in and they may have other issues. They may have dyslexia or ADHD or something else going on, or they're just different people because we're all different people. We all have different abilities. And I hear a lot from these students. They'll say, well, what's wrong with me? Why am I dumb? I'm getting good grades at school. And I don't understand why this is happening. And I'm not going to get into college and I'm going to fail out and then I'm going to live on the street and never get, I mean, they have a whole story and just cycles and cycles. And one thing I really talk with students about is what these tests measure and what they don't measure, because a lot of times the kids and also the parents too really view these tests as IQ tests and they're not, they're not measuring how smart you are. And they're not even aptitude tests either measuring your different abilities. The SAT used to stand for scholastic aptitude test and it doesn't anymore because it isn't an aptitude test. They had to stop calling it that. And so now SAT officially stands for nothing. It's just the SAT. And and so really all these tests are, or are a measure of how you performed on this particular test on this particular day 
on this particular skill set. And that's it. It doesn't say how smart a student is. It doesn't say if they're a good person or not. It doesn't say if they're going to be successful in the future or not. It's just information. And a lot of my students have have really never heard that from anybody because they've just heard, you must succeed. You must do this. It's the most important thing. And things have shifted a little bit in the past few years. But there's such a cultural knowledge of this is the SAT and it's scary and we know it's coming up and everybody knows, oh, you take the SAT when you go to college or you take the ACT. And a lot of that just isn't true. Really? So what's, what, I mean, you have a lot of colleges and it's been a while since I was in college. Uh, <laughs> they required us to have some both and just some, just the SAT. Um, and then you can take it as many times. Like I took the SAT, I think three times or maybe in the ACT twice. And yes. my, my measurement was no, it was not enough to, to carry the, the mark. Yeah. So right now things are a little confusing because everything has changed tremendously. Like everything has changed in the last few years, college admissions have really changed. And so in the past, pre-COVID, most schools did want scores. There were some schools who had gone to what's called test optional, where you get to decide if you're going to submit your scores or not. And the rest of the schools, though, did want scores. And for a long time, it was regional. Different parts of the country wanted the ACT, different parts wanted the SAT. But within about the last 10 years or so, that shifted so that all schools that took scores or accepted scores would take either the SAT or the ACT. And that's still true today. So if you are applying to a school that wants scores or gives you the option, you can take either one of them. You, How do you choose and you, which one you need to take? Is there some, a certain uh -huh. I don't remember? Typically what I have my students do is if they haven't taken one for real, I have them take a practice test for an ACT and an SAT. And that's something you can just do at home. And both the SAT and the ACT have official practice tests out on their website that you can find. SATs is through Khan Academy, which is K-H-A-N. And then ACT has one on their website. And so you can take those tests at home. You can score them. I usually recommend that people time them so that you get a, a decent um estimation of where you're scoring. And then you can compare the scores. And it's a little bit difficult to compare the scores because they're on different scales. ACT is out of 36 and the SAT is out of 1600. And those numbers, those are called scaled scores. Those are just made up numbers that they've made up for their tests. They don't inherently mean anything one versus the other. But the way that you can compare them is to look at the percentile ranks that are associated with those scores. So like a 20 well, up until just recently, a 20-ish out of 36 on the ACT was 50th percentile. That was kind of right in the middle of all students who take the test. And for SAT, that 50th percentile level is 1,000. And you can find those charts on the internet if you awesome. just Google compare SAT and ACT percentile ranks or scores. There's all kinds of charts that they're called concordance charts. And you can find how they relate to each other. And if there's a test that is clearly better than the other, then that's definitely the test you want to pursue. If they are fairly equal to each other, then there's some other factors con to consider. And some of that is personal preference because I talked to some students who are like, I am never taking that test again. I hated it. I don't want anything to do with it. I'm definitely doing this one. Sometimes it comes down to things like sports schedules or extracurricular schedules of when can you take the test because they're offered in different months. And it, when they're similar to each other, it may make sense to eventually take the other test if one of them is much higher than the other, you probably should just focus on one of them.
Okay. And is it still like Scantron form and still like bubbles or is it? It is at the moment. The SAT is actually changing in 2024. So in March of 24, they are going digital and the whole test format is changing. It's going to be shorter. It's going to be on a computer. And that's that's going to be a really interesting experiment. I've I've known for years and years this was coming and I'm not quite sure what's going to happen. Um, typically when a new test rolls out and especially one like this where the entire technology is changing on it, I, I and a lot of other test prep people that I know generally tend to steer people away from the test right as it comes out, a new test right as it comes out, because for a couple of reasons. One is that there isn't a lot of practice material out there yet for a new test because it hasn't been implemented. And over about the first year or so, the material subtly changes. And it's not something that students would know, but I can go back and look at the early practice tests that were released and, and know what's happening right now and see, yep, that didn't end up making the cut. This isn't on there. You would never see a question like that. And so some students will just want to do it and it'll probably be fine. But in general, I recommend let a new test sit for a little bit. But if your child is going to be a junior during the 23-24 school year, that is something to consider that you, if they're going to take the SAT, they may want to take the old one and they need to do that by December of their junior year because then the next test in March will change. Oh, what a great tip. I know I, everything's becoming digitized. Um, my kids are young, so we're far from that. So I figured they're probably all going to be digital at that point um, when they when they get older. But they do a lot of their reading assessments on mm-hmm. the computer. And my yes. mom is old school reading <laughs> specialist. And she's like, no, like it's, it's not, not good for the brain. Like you need to like paper and you need to write it. Down. Like it's, it and so they're like, these test scores are crazy. Like that's terrible. And she always just uh, dismisses the the digital ones. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes. And some of my younger students, so I do SAT and ACT for my high school students. And then I also work with a group of students who are younger, fifth and eighth grade, who are taking entrance exams for private schools and boarding schools. And those tests are called the SSAT and the ISEE. And those did go digital very quickly at the beginning of the pandemic because they must have had it already in the works because they rolled them out pretty quickly. SAT and ACT, all of those tests got canceled for about six months the first year of the pandemic because there was no way to do them. But the the younger kids test, they went online. And I I was really resistant about that too. I always swore because I'm very paper and pencil oriented too. And that's how I learned how to teach test prep was using paper and pencil methods. And I when the, the younger kids tests went online, I kind of dreaded it, but they're so used to using computers and taking assessments online. It's not as big a deal to them. And in fact, I discovered in the last few years, my younger students don't know what Scantron sheets are, oh, which I cracks know. me up it's because like, they've never used them. And so I have to- with The Scantrons, like you got to erase it. Number two pencil, yes. like, oh. Don't don't mark on it. No stray marks. Don't go over yeah. the thing. And all so, the, like I have like all the pink, like, like ding, 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 ding. They're all uh-huh. wrong. It's like the nightmare. They're like, oh my gosh, slow pink. Yes. And they, they are not familiar with Scantron sheets. So I've had to start in the last few years explaining how to use bubble sheets to kids, which I think is funny because it was such an institution forever for all of us who are adults and to think that kids don't know them, but then they really like them. Sometimes I have students who are like, can we practice with the bubble sheets? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I never knew probably like, oh, that would be something <laughs> exciting, but yes, of course we can. That's so fun. I know I, my kids wouldn't know what a bubble sheet is. The, and the new math, the new math. Um, so 
oh man, math in general. Uh, I not a math person. Algebra was fine. And I don't know if it's because it was like letters and mm-hmm. symbols more so than just like regular, but like my daughter who's seven is struggling a lot in math. We're going to try and get her um, uh, evaluated to see if there's just something that's just not clicking. Mm-hmm. And um, math, my mom did a worksheet with her the other day because I was working late and she's like, that was really hard, even for me. Like, these new math problems or work them out yes. and they're like that's not the right way you're supposed to do them I'm like I don't even know I know the answer but the way you're trying to get me to rewarding them it's like I don't know what that means groups of 10 and mark them and bizarre so yes and and I I have the same struggles because I I learned math the way most adults learned it at least in the U.S. and um some of my students are coming with these very intricate methods that are very complicated and not efficient. And for my purposes, because I teach test prep, I usually just teach them the way that I know that I've learned that everybody else learned. And when they learn those strategies, they're like, oh, this is easy. Why did my teacher tell me this? And I say, I don't know. I'm sorry. And I say, maybe you can't use this in school, but this is how you're going to do it on the test. And this is how you're going to do it going forward, most likely. And it is the easier way to do it. And I, I find the new math, honestly, confusing as well and that made me be a grumpy old person but the other things are easier yes and so many more steps and so many so many more steps and (laughs) and when you have more steps there's more room for error and there's more places to make mistakes and so what I typically do is just teach my kids the way that I know how to do it and then and because for test purposes the the goal of a test a standardized test is just get as many right answers as you can as quickly as you can and it doesn't really matter how you get there you just want to do it efficiently and expediently and move along and so when I also tutor math and with those students that I have I'll, I'll do it their school way and then I'll say also here's another way to do it and and I say maybe your teacher will not like that and you do need to do it this way but here is also how you do it for real yeah, because they ding you and they take points away if you're not showing your work in the margin or right. the way they want. And it's like, I can't teach you how to do it if I don't know. That's also, mm-hmm. I think, another big gap is that the, the teachers are sending home work to, for us to do with them, but we were not taught that way. At least I wasn't. And right. so I'm like, I don't even know how and then like that's not right I'm like well that's the answer so I've got it right so I don't uh-huh. understand how it's not right <laughs> yes one one tip for things like that is there's a ton of information on YouTube of people yeah. explaining how to do things very simply and sometimes when kids come to me with stuff from school that is a method I have not learned or I don't know I'll look it up quickly on YouTube and there's usually somebody who can explain it pretty clearly and I go okay so I show them that way and then I go okay here's the backdoor way to do it here's the real way and with education, it, education goes in cycles. And so that, and I've been teaching the tutoring for 22 years and I have seen math fall in and out of favor and same with phonics and reading and different methods. And so at, at some point, I suspect it will cycle back around to not so much of the new math and maybe back towards the old math is what I'm hoping. Oh my gosh. I hope so. Cause it's awful. Um, so what, how do you help, um, how can like listeners find you to, to get some help? Because I think like right now I'm, I'm on a hunt for a tutor because I just, my kids are in private school. They don't allow them to count on their fingers. Again, it also gets really hard when you've got a teacher that does one thing and then you've got like the interventionalist, so to speak, is like, why wouldn't you do that? Because it's a tool that you have on your hand. Mm-hmm. And so like the interventionalist is saying it's okay. But then when they go to a class down the, down the hall, it's, 
no, you can't do it. So it's very difficult for kids mm-hmm. to, to just, and then their confidence is down or they're right. now trying to p- please, like, I don't want to make them mad or I don't want to do it wrong, but they're saying it's okay. It's very confusing. Um, do you help with those types of things as well? Like tutoring or, um, you know, you do more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I do. I also do math tutoring as well because I really like teaching math. And one of the reasons I like teaching math is because I, I ran into trouble with it when I was in school and I had always been in the advanced math class. And then we moved when I was in sixth grade and we got there late and they weren't able to put me in the advanced class. And so what they did is they gave me an eighth grade textbook, which was algebra one, which I had not taken pre-algebra yet. They sat me in the hallway for an entire school year and they said, teach this book to yourself. And I sat in the hall for a year in sixth grade and taught myself algebra one incorrectly because I was 12 and what 12 year old knows how to teach themselves algebra one. And it messed me up for the rest of middle school and high school. And I got into that same cycle of thinking, oh, I'm dumb. I can't do math. This isn't for me. I'm not, you know, I'm just bad at this. And I had that whole story for a long time. And when I started teaching test prep when I was 21, I had to go back and relearn all of these math concepts. And when I was able to learn them, when I was able to start at the base and build up rather than trying to fill in gaps, and I could see everything from the top down rather than just being in the middle of it, it all, it, it all started to make sense to me. And I realized, oh, I'm not bad at math. I just was missing important things. And when I had those important skills, I could put it all together. And so I do really like teaching math because I know why people struggle with it. And I know, oh, I know why you made that error because I made that same error before. And sometimes people who are very smart at math and have always been smart at math don't make very good teachers or tutors for it because it's so obvious and so intuitive to them that it's hard to understand why other people can't just look at it in the same way and go, well, obviously it's this, clearly it's this. And I know why people mess it up because I had that same problem too. And that really informs my teaching when I teach because a lot of problems that people have with math isn't that they're struggling with the skill, it's that they don't have the the basics down. And that is especially true right now because with the younger kids and with the older ones too, like my fifth graders, they missed most of second and third and some of fourth grade sometimes. And really important math things happen during those years. Yes. And if you missed all of that math, of course, you're going to be struggling. If you don't know your times tables, if you don't know how to divide and multiply, if you don't understand fractions, you're going to struggle. And so what I am telling parents right now is really go back to basics and make sure they do know their times tables because most a, a pretty good chunk of students right now don't know their times tables. So if you ask them six times eight, they have no idea. No idea. Do the math and, facts. They're doing math facts. My little yes. ones doing math facts. It, and it, there is a lot of just drilling that needs to go on. And there are different philosophies about drilling and not. And But honestly, that's how you get better at math is practice. And the only way to learn those times tables is to practice them over and over and over again. And, and then they're there. And if you don't have them, it makes the rest of math really hard because you're constantly, you can't do algebra, you can't do fractions because you're constantly going, okay, eight and eight and eight, eight times two plus eight times two. And if you just know eight times four is 32, it's a whole lot easier than trying to do all those intermediary steps. And so I would really recommend to parents go back to basics, make sure your kids understand all of those basic things. And if they don't intervene early because math just gets harder and it all builds on itself. And if you're just waiting, like, well, maybe it'll be better next year, or maybe it's just their teacher, or maybe they're just having a bad year. Don't wait because it, it just builds and builds and builds. And then they end up as high school students who can't take SAT and ACT because they don't have their fourth and fifth grade skills. 
Right, right. That makes sense. That makes sense. So how can we find you and, and um, get your amazing help? It sounded like when I was asking that question, I was trying to hire you as a tutor. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm available. Well, hey, let's go. Um, uh, when people are looking in, into finding help or how can we um, find you or uh, resources and things? At sure. Health? So my website is www.inhousetestprep.com. It's I-N-H-O-U-S-E test prep, all one word. And on my website, I do have some free parent guides for both the SAT and ACT, and then also for SSAT, ISCE. There's a link on there if you wanted to schedule a time to talk. I'd be happy to talk. I do free consultations, no obligation for things. And I do do the test prep, and I also do math up through about algebra two or so. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I mean, all of these things will definitely be in the show notes. I think that um, educating parents, uh, just any in, in, in maybe older students that are, are listening or just what the ACT, SAT and, and really simplifying it to where it's like, this is what it's supposed to measure because there's so much weight that's put behind it, at least in mm-hmm. old ways. Um, I just remember all that. And so making sure that we're also not pressuring our kids too, too much. Right. This is a lot for them to learn. Mm-hmm. To it is. Remember what we didn't like, we didn't like learning it either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and it is, it's just a step in the process. And one thing I do want to say before we wrap up too, there are a lot of schools that have gone test optional lately where you do get to decide some schools have actually gone test blind in California. There was a lawsuit uh, with the UC school system and they are actually not allowed to accept any scores at this point. And so oh. If there there are options out there, and some people are genuinely just never going to be good at tests, I still think that's not true for most people, but for some people it really is. And so what I want to tell your listeners is that there are options out there if your child really is not going to be a standout at testing or if it's not going to be a good use of time. But some of the schools that say they're test optional are kind of test optional in name only. So and they really do want scores or they want to see high scores. And so what I would recommend is doing research on that. And you, usually if you you Google the school and the name and test optional, you'll find out what's going on. Um, but there's plenty of options out there for everybody. Yeah. And I think too, um, they don't just, how much weight do they really put behind scores these days? I mean, uh, so much now with resumes and. GPA. Right. So they, they are a piece of the application for a lot of schools. They are still important pieces, but at some schools, if you're, if you're a very high score and you're looking at Ivy league score schools, everybody there is going to have a high score. So once you get to 1550 out of 1600 or so, 1550, 1516, 1570, those are all 99th percentile. Not one of them doesn't really make you all that more competitive than the other, because basically what it says is, okay, you won the SAT. And it's kind of like a checkbox in that case. Okay. Yep. Got a high test score. And at other schools, they do carry a lot of weight. Some schools just don't care as much. And so it's really pretty school dependent. I had a friend that um, took the SAT and he still got a perfect score, but he saw that he missed two and he went back to take it again. I'm like, again. yes. Like, and and that <laughs> some, some people really are insistent about that because if it gets a matter of pride or just for a personal reason, but from a emissions perspective that that doesn't work anymore yeah he won the sat so you know and and schools don't even see how many questions you got right or not all they see is what your total score is so they wouldn't have even known that anyway they would have just seen the 1600 number Mm -hmm. excellent well thank you so much this was 
very helpful. I think it answered a lot of my childhood fear questions. I got a, got a little therapy session today. Like, oh, it's okay. It's fine. It is okay. I, These things are manageable. That's what I really want to tell parents and students. These are manageable. They're learnable. They're coachable. And you can do it in a controlled way. That is not scary. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing this. And uh, do you have any links or um, do you have social media or we, we said your website uh, to follow you for any tips, tricks or yeah, so I have an Instagram. It's my first and last name, Kelly Frindell, and I've got a Facebook page with the same. Perfect. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to educate us more on standardized tests and easing our stress and and telling us again that it's okay that if you're not good at math, it's okay. There's people out there and and, and there's resources and YouTube, of course, is always a great thing to use. And um, yeah, if there's anything else that you want to leave, what what would that be? Just to really keep these tests in perspective and try, if you're a parent, know that they are important, the tests, but don't make your kid crazy. And if you're a student, don't make yourself crazy either, because at the end of the day, it is, it's just information. Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you again. And all of the uh, links will be in the show notes and resources that Kelly uh, has provided us. And if you want to uh, follow or reach out to her for anything help, which I might, especially when you get back to Austin, uh, <laughs> I will um, just, just, you know, reach out and um, thank you again for being here and sharing your knowledge with us. Thanks. I appreciate it. And thank you again for listening to another episode of the Chaos Cookies podcast. We will catch you on the next one. Thank you for listening to the Chaos and Cookies podcast. If you want more goodies and friends to share them with, follow the crumbs to the Facebook group or visit the Chaos and Cookies website to grab my sweet secrets on how to calm your cookies. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. See y'all next week for another episode of Chaos and Cookies.